turn the other thing around. And, oops, am I not on here? I was not. So I think I'm ready to go. Kids, you're dismissed if there are any. If they're not, then the Sunday school people are stuck with me. <laughs> we actually have 35 kids hiding downstairs. And we tell them to stay there. Okay, there may be one down there. Try not to torment them like last week. Okay, here we go. Let me move this around. Ah, I got it the wrong spot. June 27, 2010, lecture discussion number four. Today is number four on the book of Romans. And again, it's more introduction. It may not seem like introduction, but it is, in fact, introduction. We're going to back up pretty soon. I'll reset the typewriter. That tells you what my age is. And then we'll begin to uh, uh, glean and repeat some of these questions that we're asking. Of course, as you know, my goal is to get you to ask them. Okay, previously, last week, if you will, we left off last Sunday, lecture discussion number three. That's really for the people who listen on the Internet uh, with the great thesis statement of the book of Romans. And you all know the great thesis statement of the book of Romans, that which prime, that Paul intends to prove. He's going to spend his entire life. It's going to consume his ministry. It's going to uh, be the purpose of his ministry. It is going to take every single day of his life is, is what he will do here. And that is, repeat Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And that, as you know, is an extraordinarily complex verse. Extraordinary. The just shall live by faith. And I intentionally separated into those three pieces. And that's very important to understand it as you go through it. The just shall live by faith. Now, many of you... You've studied Romans before and you all have come up to me and told me that you have. And I'm very proud of you. And that's really exciting. And you should have studied Romans because of that thesis statement primarily, but mostly because it is where the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. So studying Romans is, is critically important to the Christian today in order to stay out of the traps that come. Having studied Romans, then you're aware that that great thesis statement, the just shall live by faith, is where else in Scripture? Where did Paul write it from? Most of your Bibles will have it in italics because it is a quote of the Old Testament, verse uh, 2-4 of Habakkuk. Romans 1.17, that great thesis statement, the, the, what Paul consumes his life with, is Habakkuk 2-4. So what do we have to do now? To study Romans, what do you have to do? You have to study Habakkuk. And that puts you back into the Babylonian captivity, and that puts you back to Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah. And now we are into Nebuchadnezzar and the image and the great prophecies of Daniel, the great prophecies of Ezekiel, the final temple, all of that stuff. In order to understand, the just shall live by faith. Because when Habakkuk says it, he means something far more depth than what we normally will take it as. And Paul took that verse and applied it here correctly, by the way. You would expect that. But anyway, back we go to the judgment of Israel, the destruction that came through Nebuchadnezzar. And, and uh, Ezekiel down on the river. 
And we also find, by the way, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted elsewhere in the New Testament. And you should know that as, as uh, it will force you to go into Hebrews 10.38. And I would expect, by the way, that Hebrews would have Habakkuk in it, just as Romans has Habakkuk in it. Where else do I have Habakkuk? I have it in Galatians. What's the common denominator between Galatians and Romans? Both written by Paul. They're both epistles of Paul, letters of Paul. So what do I now know about the book of Hebrews? See, many will disagree with me here. And, of course, that makes them wrong. That's right. And that's unfortunate for them. But the writer of Hebrews made argument after argument after argument. All of Hebrews 11. First, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 and 10.38 of Hebrews. And then all of Hebrews 11 is the grace shall live by faith. And I'd expect that out of who? I'm sorry, the just shall live by faith. I would expect this argument for grace to be made by who? Paul. And it is obvious to me that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. It is, as is the book of Romans, centered in salvation by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, by the blood of Christ alone. That's what it is. The book of uh, the 11th chapter of, of Hebrews, as is the entire book of Romans. And Paul... Uh, intended for that. By the way, only Paul does and would sign off his writings um, with the same incredibly powerful and complex statement. And he does it in Hebrews. He does it in Romans. He did it in Hebrews 13, 25. He does it in every single one of his letters. And he says at the end, his benediction, grace be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. By the way, don't pass that by so quickly. Grace be with you. Don't run through that, thinking that, oh, that's just a benediction, it's just the way he signed it. Paul is knowingly ending with the system of God, grace. The one, the only, approved, accepted, true salvation. That's how he ends every one of his letters. And that is, a, that is very controversial when he wrote it. Because he's contrasting grace. He is saying, grace be with you. In other words, he's saying, salvation be with you. If you have any other salvation besides grace, you're not saved. So grace be with you. Grace contrasted with the result of man-designed systems that all end in destruction. That's what he's doing. And so don't, just never, never go quickly over anything in Scripture. Sit down and ponder and be very careful with every aspect of it. But particularly here in Romans, the just shall live by faith. Okay, I hope you've noticed the obvious questions by now in there. I keep repeating it, don't I? The just shall live by faith. I'm going to annoy you with it. Part of my technique, as you know, is what's called the beaded in method. It is what made me an extraordinarily successful high school PE teacher. Okay, maybe a much better high school math teacher. But it is the way you beat it into people. You just repeat it until they literally are so sick of it. It's all they remember. And that's my plan. The just shall live by faith. I wanted you by now to notice the obvious questions. And they should have whooped you upside the head by now. When you first read or hear of Romans 117 or really Habakkuk 2.4, questions out of those six words should be hitting you. And I hope by now that you've done all of that. That's one of my, my intentions. That's one of my goals. I want to stop you from reading Scripture the way you do. 
I want to stop you from reading Scripture shallowly. I want you to stop quickly reading the Bible. Once you stop reading it quickly, you're now ready to read it. I want you to stop reading it very fast, thinking that you've accomplished something, because you probably haven't. I want you to go through the Bible slow, very slow. Maybe all you get is one verse. That's all you get. And you ask every single question you can ask in that verse. I want you to have reverence and have respect and have awe. God wrote nothing that you can go by fast. There's nothing in there that you can just simply go through and disregard or think that, okay, that's just the introduction or that's just the benediction. I I can ignore it. You can't. The very last thing that Paul ever wrote, as I say, on the end of every letter, probably the most profound and the most controversial. When he wrote, grace be with you, he started a fist fight every single time. So have reverence, have respect. God's holy word is not, it is not, it is not to be trivialized and treated with a shallow demeanor. Read your novels, your newspapers, your book face or your Facebook, whatever it is. Read that very fast. Skip and skim that. But do not read the Bible that way. Not Scripture. Every word in Scripture has great consequence. So with that in mind, let's see if the questions come flying out at us as they should here. The just shall live by faith. Have you memorized that yet? People tell me all the time, I cannot memorize Scripture. Okay? What is Romans 117? You're brilliant. See how easy it is? Last week we asked the obvious question. What was the obvious question? When you read that, the just shall live by faith, what's the first obvious question? Who are the just? Who are they? So there's your first question. Who are the just? Now, I always want people to apply that immediately. Am I one of them? Once I identify who they are, am I one of them? Maybe you don't have a definition of just yet. That's good. Who are the just? Now, ask, what does it mean to be just? How does one become just? I'll make it easier. How does one become justified? What is the justified process? Do you know? Why do we need to be justified? Why can't we just be? Why are we separated into the just? And if we are into the just, what's implied? There's unjust. Who are the just? Am I in the just? Who is the unjust? Am I in the unjust? What's the difference between the just and the unjust? How many words have you got so far? Why did he use the definitive article? He could have used just. But he said the just. As opposed to a just. Who justified them? Justified by whom? Justified to whom? How did they get just? Why were they made just? Who cares if they're just? Who made the process that you must be just? Why do some become just? Because it's implied that if I have just, I have unjust. What's the proportion? How many just do I have for just out of a hundred? That's what a math teacher does. He immediately goes to ratios. Thank you for laughing. Please sit in the front row next week. Why do some become just? Why do some not become just? What's the proportion? Obviously, this is a legal process. A judge is involved, a trial, a declaration, paperwork, written entries made into books. 
That's what this is. Why is it a legal process? Why do I need a courtroom? Why do I need a judge? Why do I need all of this paperwork? And why do I need these books? And why do I have entries in these books? Why this process? By the way, what is the, what is the proportion of uh, those who are just to those who are not just? I'm going to say I've got a thousand people. I'm going to say a thousand people. Out of that thousand people, how many are unjust? This is going to really shock you, I think. Out of a thousand people, how many are unjust? I'm going to say a thousand. I ain't got a big enough sample. Out of two thousand people, how many are unjust? Two thousand, I ain't got a big enough sample. How big a sample do I need before I finally find a just person? Wow. See, that's pretty scary stuff. I'm going to propose to you that I find hundreds of millions of unjust before I start finding a just. You know, he says so, by the way. He says the, right now, how many people we have in the, uh, in the uh, world? What do you think? Let's just, be, let's just be a little high. Let's say we have 10 billion. Okay, 10 times 10 to the what? Okay, exponential notation. Why do you need to know that? So that you can be lazy. That's why. I have 10 billion in the world today. How many of them are justified? The just shall live by faith. How many of them will live by faith? What would you guess? 100 million? Do the math. I hope it's 100 million. Anyway, what am I trying to point out? I'm trying to point out that if this is the unjust pile right there, here's the just pile. Can you see that? Can you see the just pile? And I probably made it too big. There's the just pile. Why is the unjust pile so big and the just pile so small? Is that fair? If it is fair, why is it fair? Why aren't everybody just? That's one of the great questions of Scripture. Why aren't everybody just? Can you answer that? Somebody should ask you today, why isn't everybody just? And you should say what? What do you say to them? That's the same question as why aren't everyone saved? Why isn't everyone saved? Bible is very specific. Not everyone is saved. Why not? Is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. Why is it fair? Most are condemned. And if most are condemned, why are they condemned? And by what evidence are they condemned? Who gathered the evidence? Who submits the evidence? Who's the witness of the evidence? Who prosecutes the evidence? Who's the judge? Who condemns them? How for how long are they condemned? Okay. What's the standard of the condemnation? As you know. So how many words have I got so far? How many questions have I asked? I got one word. That's why I want you to go really, really slow in this Bible. One word. I skipped the. I just stopped at just. Okay, I added just to the. I could go on page after page. I got hundreds of questions out of the word just. How many do I want you to get? Twenty. I'll be happy. I'll be thrilled. What do you think is going to happen to shall live? Okay. What's the... What's the tense of shall? 
that present tense? That's future tense. Why is it future tense? Anyway, we're still with just. The sentence is death as God defines it. The second death. Revelation 20:14, Eternal death. The sentence for the unjust is eternal death. Therefore, it is mathematically logical that the sentence for the just is what? The opposite of that, eternal life. The just shall live. That's a big deal. That's future tense. God defines, by the way, what it means to live. See, I have a choice. You've got to define live. What does it mean to live? Because you can't make this mistake. Define live is my next question. I'm moving along just because I have to. Not define live, define live. Okay? Who defines live? Do you get to define live? Do you even know what live is? See, don't define it as exist, because there is a big difference between exist and live. Live does not equal exist. God defines what it, what it means to live. Uh, we can sometimes come up with exist. All exist. It's the same thing. All exist, some live. Now I'm back to just and unjust, aren't I? The just live. The unjust do not live. The unjust what? Exist. What is the difference between live and exist? And all exist, by the way, that we call that immortality. All have immortality, only some live. What's the difference between live and exist? What's the difference? Let me put it another way to you. All are resurrected. Everyone is resurrected. All are resurrected. There are none that are not resurrected. Some are resurrected to life. Most are not. Most are resurrected to Existence or death. When God says existence, he means death. When he says live, he means something completely different. Is it okay for babies to cry in church? It absolutely is. Is it okay for people to look at the baby that is crying in church? Absolutely is. Is it okay to make googly faces at the baby in order to distract the pastor? No. No, it's not. That's bad. Fortunately, you're not around any baby today. That's good. A couple of weeks ago, all of you, I'm sure you noticed, Hannah's just going nuts. The clock isn't working. It's a good thing I wrote it down. I've gone ten seconds. Wow, cool. <laughs> okay. Babies cry. Drowns out the pastor. It's really a good thing. All are resurrected. Some are resurrected to life. Most are resurrected to, to death. What's the obvious question? The obvious question is, why are they resurrected at all? Why is anybody resurrected? Why does he resurrect? What is he resurrecting? What is he resurrecting? Resurrecting the body. Why does he want the body? Why doesn't he just have a spirit of us? Body's very important to him. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ's body, as you know, Romans will tell you in our introduction, is the definitive proof that he is God. Why is that the case? We have to answer that question. Okay, let's keep going, though. 
The inverse is implied in this wonderful, incredible sentence, verse, the just shall live by faith. The inverse is implied. And that's what makes it so important. That's what makes it so powerful. If the just shall live by faith, then what is the inverse? Okay, let's go ahead. The just. And what am I doing again? Shall live. I'm beating it into you. By faith. If you know anything in the book of Romans, that is enough. Just be happy right there. Spend your whole life. If the just shall live by faith, then the unjust, okay, the unjust will what? If this is present tense, then this will be present tense as well. They shall what? Shall exist. I'm going to put it better. Shall die. Not better, but so it has a little bit more complimentary ring to it. If the just shall live by faith, then the unjust shall die. What kills them? It's got to be, if this is opposite, if this is opposite, then it's got to be the opposite of faith. What is the opposite of faith? Boy, I'm getting lots of answers. That's cool. No faith. What is no faith? Huh? Time? I'm going to give you this. If the just shall live by faith, the unjust shall die by works. I'll try to prove that to you now. Let's go to Revelation 20, verse 11. I think you'll like Revelation 20, verse 11. For a little while. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whom whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, that standing before Jesus Christ, God, and books were opened. God has books. He makes entries. He has lists, if you will, and books were open. You have to study the Hebrew to understand what these books are. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. By the way, he never calls the saved something. What does he never call them in Scripture? Dead. Saved or never dead. The dead are dead. What makes somebody dead, according to God? He defines life and he defines death. It's very handy for you to go through your life with the correct definition. As you know, I do quite a few funerals. I haven't done any lately, which is a good thing. But my mother is about to die. We, she's now in hospice care. And you know what that means. Those of you who have been around this, you know hospice care means that it's a very short time for her. Uh, and her body is about to die. I do not believe that she is one of the dead. I found her Bible. Now, my parents are a generation where they never talked to us about things like this, especially my dad, until at the very end. 
But um, he, I was absolutely certain about. My mother confused me a lot with some of her strange ideas. But I found her Bible. And inside her Bible were things that she had written down that she knew were true. So that was a, a pretty big deal to me when I found it. And Susie makes her listen to my sermons. So I am doing what to her? That's right, getting even. That's what I'm doing. But I'm convinced that she is not one of the dead. So her funeral, it will not be a sad thing. It will be, we should have joy at funerals of saved people, right? And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to the opposite of faith. Each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. (coughs) And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So you go through life and you meet lots of people. You meet dead people and you meet living people as God defines it. The dead people... The old movie, and and I saw it, and it bored me, no offense, because it was obvious to me that Bruce Willis was dead ten seconds into the movie. All I could do was resist spoiling it for everyone around me. I don't know if I resisted or not. I don't remember. I seldom go to movies, and why don't I go to movies? Because you have to be quiet in the movie theater, and that's very difficult for me to do. I, I want to talk during the movie. Anyway, the, I thought it was quite, quite interesting. The big line of the movie was what? I see dead people. So do I. So do you. You just don't know it. I hope I don't see any dead people, but I know I do. There's nothing sadder than to do a funeral of somebody you know is a dead person versus a live person. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And there you have the many. There you have those resurrected, not unto life, but unto the second death. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. The dead are determined by their works. They die by works. The just live by faith. The the just have life given to them because they have faith. What's the obvious question now? Where where did they get the faith from? What is the definition of works? What is the difference between faith and works? We know mathematically they are opposite. But how is it that that works? Okay. Anyway. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. And here comes the great joke of the day. How'd that work out for him? I'm sorry about that joke. Not really. It's a fake sorry. But there's your pattern. Physical death of the dead. Resurrection of the dead. Judgment for the dead according to the works of the dead. And then cast into the lake of fire. 
So obviously, we're going to need some definitions. We need to define works immediately. We need to know, as I said, it's the absolute opposite of faith. So how is it that it is the absolute opposite? If I put faith over here, okay, as far as I can get away from faith, I have works. So when I see a church, for example, that says you are saved by faith, but you got to do something in order to keep that salvation. Now we're into eternal security, aren't we? The first thing that I want them to know is, hey, works is the absolute opposite of faith and people who have works die. So why do I want to co-mingle works and faith together? First, I have to define works, though, don't I? We know that faith has belief as the central element to it. I'm speeding along now. So if faith is the opposite of works, and this is all math, and I know faith has as its central element belief. You are saved by faith through belief in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through his blood. Okay? It's a lot of the same thing. Faith equals belief. Okay? So, what does works equal then? What is the opposite of belief? This is really easy, this one. Unbelief. Yes. So, if faith equals belief, then works equals unbelief. Obvious question. How is it that works be, is unbelief? Can, you, can I stop now? Some of you, I can. Good. You know why faith or why works is unbelief. Because works is unbelief. Why would I want to add works to faith and try to get belief? Okay. Well, we'll continue just in case there's somebody who's not hungry and wants me to keep going. What is the relationship between works and unbelief? How is it that they are tied together? Why do those who do not believe, why do those who do not believe, who have no faith, rely on their works? I get it all the time. They come to me and they say, my Uncle Joe was a good person. Really? Because if he's a good person, I always say to them, he's what? He's the only one. Because the Bible's very clear. There are no good people. Sorry. Apart from those who have the blood of Christ and that goodness is given to them, they didn't earn it and they didn't have any participation, if you will, in the sense that they, uh, they uh, accomplished anything. So, how is it that works is connected, entangled with unbelief. Works is the absolute opposite of belief. You do the simple math, can't you? And God is the definer of belief. He alone declares what is life. He alone declares what is death. He alone declares what is belief. And He alone declares what is unbelief. What mankind thinks is belief is really what? Of no value unless what? Unless... It reflects God's definition. You can have your own definition of belief. Good for you. Good luck with that, by the way, if it's not exactly like God's definition of belief. In other words, what you believe is belief is only belief if God affirms that it's belief. Does that make sense? I've had many come to me and say, I believe that God's definition of belief isn't right. Cool. 
I'm going to substitute God's definition of belief with my definition. Lori does this great impersonation of this lady that Bill knows. Um, So that should tell you who it is right there. But it's the blue flame. And she can do this blue flame. Ask her to do it after the sermon. And (laughs) believing in the blue flame. I'm going to get in trouble for that now. People think that I read emails. I don't. Lori reads all the emails. And then she prints them out and gives them to me. And so when they're bad, Lori has to read them. And I'm very hard to find because I don't have an email address and I don't have, what's that other thing I don't have? A book face. I don't have that. I don't have that. (laughs) I listen to some guy on the radio. Everybody now wants to be famous. It's a race to get all these people to come to your space. I don't want you in my space, no offense. I I want my space to be just mine. I don't want anybody to know it's there. It's just mine. I'm happy with it. I like anonymity. I don't want people to know where I'm hiding. Some of you want to be famous, and boy, that is the opposite of me. Okay, back to the sermon. The most obvious question in all of this course, in, in, in all of this, why did God establish this as the way to, as his process? The just shall live by faith. Why is that the way that, that this is done? Faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. That's his system. Why is that the system? Why faith? Why did he do it with faith? Belief, if you will. How does one get faith? What is faith exactly? And by the way, how do you get faith? He has to give it to you. You get faith by grace. If by grace, then what is works? If faith is belief, and the way you get belief and the way you get faith is that he gives it to you supernaturally to your mind and not your body. Works is equal to unbelief. Whatever this is, works has to be the opposite of grace somehow, doesn't it? Works must be the opposite of grace. What is it then? How can I define it? If grace is a gift, I'll put gift. And how do you get the great, the gift? He gives it to you. Then what do you do? I'm going to make it a little easier. I'm going to make it communion service. Okay, I'll make it the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. The cup. The groom comes to the bride in the Hebrew betrothal ceremony and puts the cup in front of her of wine. If she takes the wine, if she receives the gift, then she is agreeing to be married to him, be betrothed to him, and and she goes into the bride ship, if you will. If she doesn't take the cup, then what? He picks the cup up and he goes. So the groom, the prospective groom, if you will, puts the cup in front of you. That's what communion is. Communion, by the way, is a salvation test. The cup comes in front of you. If you drink the cup, you are saying that you're in the bride. You're drinking the blood of Christ. And do you need the blood? Oh, yeah, your blood dead. Got to have new blood. It's a transfusion. How's your flesh doing? That's why I eat the bread. Flesh's no good either. Need new flesh. 
That's what communion is. He's taking out your blood. He's putting in his. Your blood's dead. His blood's alive. He's taking out your flesh. He's putting in his. Your flesh is dead. You need living flesh. You need living blood. You have dead flesh and dead blood. And then you shall live by faith. But grace, the cup, if you will, the symbol, the wine is a symbol. It's not actual blood. Sorry about transfiguration. Not really sorry. Fake sorry. Transubstantiation, I'm sorry, said that wrong. Transubstantiation is not true. Transfiguration, of course, is Matthew 17. I get confused a lot. Why do I get confused a lot? Because I don't have enough caffeine. Anyway, grace is a gift. What's the compliment for works? One thing for sure, it is the rejection of the gift, isn't it? And the result of that is law. So I'll accept your answer. What could possibly motivate someone, I ask this all the time, to re- reject salvation by grace? Refuse that blood. I mean, essentially, I've said it this way many times. You've been, you, you got poison in you, and somebody puts the antivenom in front of you and says, "Drink that," and you go, "No, I want to die of the poison." What could possibly make you do that? And how many do it? Billions and billions and billions. I don't want the antivenom. I don't want the living blood. I don't want the living flesh. I want to stay here with my dead flesh, with my poison in me. That's what I want. I'm rejecting your gift of life. And what does he do? He picks up the cup and he goes. Now, why would anybody reject that? See, it's always fascinated to me. Why would anybody reject salvation by grace, refuse this incredible gift? And that's a very key question. We should then continue reading Romans, because I suspect that Romans will answer that for us, because that's what Paul does. So we're going to skip ahead, because I read uh, Romans 1 pretty much before. I know that I didn't read it comprehensively. I know that we'll reread it, but we want to move ahead a little bit, because we're trying to make you think that I'm moving ahead. Thank you for laughing. Anyway, Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. So I have a man who judges. Who is this man, this judging? For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Oops, that's probably not good. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge, who's practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And that is a rhetorical question that assumes what? That the person who is doing this thinks they're going to escape. He's saying you're not going to escape. Or do you, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? What is that? That is rejecting something. What do, they re- what do they despise? They despise the gift of eternal life. Why do they despise his goodness? Who rejects that? Who rejects goodness? And who, re- who despises goodness? 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? So here is the answer to the question, why does somebody turn down that cup? Here it is. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And there we go again. His deeds. Revelation 20 doesn't work out so good. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Why do they do good? They do good because they have been given salvation. Not because they're going to get into heaven by doing good. But to seek, in other words, they are rejoicing and thankful for being given life. And they want others to get life, so they do good. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Okay, like I said, hopefully you were here when we read Romans 1, 18 through 32. And we're going to return to it because it's astronomy and it's quantum physics. And you know I love that stuff, and so we have to go back. But for today, just to kind of review it, he says in one uh, in chapter 1, he says this, that there are rejectors of grace, and they have exchanged the truth of grace for the lie of works. And eventually God gives them over to their debased mind and their hearts become darkened and they profess to be wise and they, instead they become fools. And the word literally means stupid. They think they're wise, but they become stupid. And they're not thankful and their thoughts become futile. So I have that group in chapter one. Now I have this other group in chapter two. What's the other group doing? Judging the first group. There are some geniuses for you. But anyway, the first group, they are without excuse. They don't glorify God, and they're not thankful. And they turn from the very purpose for which they are made by God. We are made by God to glorify Him and to thank Him for making us. Because you've got to ask the key question, right? Why did He make us? What's in it for Him? Looks like he made a bunch of pit bulls who do what? Kill each other and try to kill him. Every time he feeds us, we bite him. Why does he make us? What's he get out of it? What do we get out of it? Why aren't we thankful? Then we run away and we're trying to kill ourselves. He chases after us, gives us blood. We despise it. Turn it down. Why do we do that? We are not thankful we do not glorify him. And then we start this pattern of decline, if you will, degradation, the degeneration, disintegration. We get into this spiral now where our mind becomes dark. Our hearts become hardened. We become stupid. Everything we think is futile and we can't understand anything. But we think what? We're geniuses. And that is the definition of what? A teenage boy. That's great. Anyway, I have these two groups. I have the first group 
that is this dark, debased, unthankful, unglorifying group that can't think anything anymore. Totally stupid. But they think they're geniuses. And then I have the second group that judges the first group and says, look at those stupid people over there. We hate them. And Paul says, both groups are in a lot of trouble. So everybody who scholars, all the scholars, they want to know. Who are these two groups? Who is Paul writing to? The first group generally is assigned to be the Gentiles. That would be us. The people who hate the Gentiles are who? Group two. That's the Jews. Why would anyone in either group, because both groups do the same thing, both groups refuse God's pardon. Why would anyone reject the offer of Jesus Christ's cup, his blood? That's how we started this. Why would anyone despise the riches of his goodness? Who would think like this? Why are people ignorant of God's intention to be kind? And why do they despise his kindness? Okay. First group... The Gentile nations. And Paul describes their state. The second group, what we just read, is the Jewish nation, and Paul describes them. The Jews do possess peculiar characteristics. They still do. They always have. It is why God has said to them, um, he has come to them so many times and put them under discipline. They have a propensity to judge Gentiles. It's what the Jews do. And they judge Gentiles because they think Gentiles are idiots. They especially think the Gentiles are idiots because the Gentiles are pagan idolaters. They're polytheists. And the Jews know better. The Jews know there isn't any other God but God. You have all your little stupid idols. You do all your stupid little rituals. You're perverse. You're immoral. And they judge them. That's how we start out. With chapter 2, the Jewish people were given the riches of a special covenant privilege. They knew things that nobody else in the world knew. That's still pretty much the case, except for the Christian church today. But the Jewish people were given this special covenant privilege. They knew who God was. They talked to him. They had his writings. They had his prophets. They knew what he was going to do. They had special privilege. But... Paul says in chapter 2, that special covenant relationship did not exempt them from judgment. God is impartial. God is kind. He's fair. The Jews, though, thought they expected that they would receive. They still do today. They are convinced they get special treatment. The just shall live by faith. The Jewish nation does not accept that. That's Habakkuk, by the way. They should accept it. But they don't. They think they're going to be saved because why? Special covenant relationship. They're born into salvation. Is that true? No. Sorry. Not really. You are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ through grace, through faith. That's it. So, Paul is addressing this here. And it must be at the forefront that at the time of writing this book of Romans, the Jews had just done something pretty significant. They had just done 
Matthew 12, which is the demarcation line in all of the New Testament. Matthew 12. We have before Matthew 12, and we have after Matthew 12 with respect to the Jewish nation. Before Matthew 12, after Matthew 12. What did they do with Matthew 12, the Jewish nation? They rejected the Messiahship of Jesus Christ on the basis that he was, in fact, really Satan. God in the flesh, the I Am, is standing in front of them, the creator of everything, of all things. The invisible made visible is standing in front of them and saying, I am the I Am, and they reject him on the basis that he is, in fact, really Satan. So, we have a before and an after. Of Matthew 12. Not every Jew, by the way. Because, as you know, the church, Christian church, was essentially founded by who? Jewish believers, right? But it's got to be in the forefront that the majority of the Jews just just rejected Jesus Christ. And what revelation did they reject? Salvation by grace through faith. And that's a very important question. How could they, how could Israel, whom God had shown such forbearance and long-suffering throughout history, how do they reject and despise and hate and seek to kill the I Am himself in the flesh? How did this happen to them? What extraordinary foolishness. How could they not recognize him? They are Israel. They have all the prophets. How come they have Isaiah 53? How could they not figure out that this is Jesus Christ? They have the Ark of the Covenant. How could they not know who he was? Okay? But they didn't know. So now, why didn't they know? Why did they reject salvation by grace? What did they want to keep instead? And hopefully you now see how the two parts logically fit together. The Gentiles are without excuse. That's Let's take the United States. The Gentiles are without excuse. The Gentiles always knew there's a God. We still know there's a God. We don't see him. He, he, he has invisibility. But we see his sustaining power, his omnipotence, his power is clearly seen. Everything is held together by him. All the complexity that is around us, every aspect of it is clearly God's power. We still, however, the Gentiles will not glorify him, nor will the Gentiles be thankful for being made, for existence, or for the wonders uh, that he has created. And so the stupid process begins and the degrading down, the dark, foolish, debased mind, the worshiping of the created instead of the creator. Is that happening today? In this country, especially Romans 124. Okay. Probably the most applicable verse in all of Scripture to the current state of humanity is Romans 124. And what does God do to the Gentile nations that do this? He abandons them, gives them over to their vile passions, and they become haters of God, inventors of evil things, unable to think, unable to know, deserving of death. The world, our country, is filled with these. That is Romans chapter 1. And then we have the Jews who judge the Gentiles. They're also without excuse. Of all the people who have ever lived, they should have seen who Jesus Christ clearly is. He is the invisible made visible. Colossians 1.15. It says the invisibility of God will be clearly seen. The Jews had the invisibility of God right in front of them. 
and they didn't see it. They're blind to him. And they are also blind to the just shall live by faith, even though that's Habakkuk 2.4. So they too are also without excuse. One refuses when it's obvious. The other one has him in front and refuses and rejects. And they are blind, not just to God, but to his salvation. And they are without excuse. And thus they too begin the spiral, the hardness. By the way, the Greek word is sclerosis. Hardening. And they are treasuring up for themselves wrath. Because, Romans 2.23 will tell you, if we go there, and we will soon, because they boast in the law. They boast in works. They like this. They don't want faith. They want works. They want, they would rather die by works than live by faith. Who thinks this way? The whole world does. All the religions, you've seen me do this thousands of times, all the religions are over here under the works. Under life, by faith, by grace. One religion over here. Millions, millions of religions, all of them, they would all rather die by works than live by faith. Why? Why? Why does everyone want to do this? They all do. That's a key question. So, Romans 2.24, the because they boast in the law, they are treasuring up for themselves wrath. And they dishonor God by boasting in the law, by wanting works. The Jews are dishonoring God. Romans 2.24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's what Paul says to the Jews. Why is it blasphemed? Because you reject this. And you want this. So, here's the personal application section of the sermon. Which group ye in? Which group do you reside? Are you thankful for your life? Are you glorifying because you have it? Are you in the not glorifying, not thankful group? Are you boasting your works? You're really proud of yourself? Look at me. I do lots of cool stuff. I'm better than Betty Lou. We call that the Betty Lou better than you clause. Are you glorifying by what you're doing? Are you doing it because you think you're getting somewhere with it? Are you doing it because you're thankful? Are you doing it because you got something that you didn't deserve? You should die, but you're not. You're going to live. And are therefore you producing fruit, effort out of thanks so that somebody else can see you and also be saved? See, which group you in? If you find yourself boasting... In the law, you are dishonoring God. 
and you are blaspheming his name to the world. That's what the book of Romans is all about. That's what we will do next week. Let's rise and be dismissed. Our last song is How Great Is Our God on page 45. Please stand. <laughs>